Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring the foundations of nursing science and practice, including theory, measurement, and methodology, and the first podcast of its kind to do a deep dive into the nuances of nursing research. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own, and none of the information I share constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Finally, you listeners are what makes this show possible. I believe providers and researchers like myself are public servants and should not be beholden to corporate advertisers, so I have thus far refused sponsorship for this show and I will not accept any advertisements of any kind. But there's still a lot of work that goes into preparing for and creating these episodes for you week to week. So if you would like to donate a small amount to support the show and keep it going, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal to do just that. It would be greatly appreciated. As a clinician, or a clinical researcher, or someone interested in clinical research, you will find yourself adopting practices to critically appraise the literature, hopefully, across the length of your career. And while you are doing this critical appraisal, you will come across a variety of different terms for things that perhaps you don't have a fully fleshed out understanding of. And yet they're going to be very important for you to be able to truly translate that evidence into your practice. And there are some non-intu there are a lot of non-intuitive figures in statistical methodology, but there are a lot of them that are incredibly practically useful for you in your critical appraisal. So one of those is risk ratios. A risk ratio is a nice way to portray risk. So imagine you have a population of 100 people and 50% of them exhibit some incident pathology. There is a 0.5 risk or a 50% risk of that pathology in that population. What I want to do is go over the differences and similarities between relative risk ratios and absolute risk ratios and when you might consider using one over the other. And what I'll do is I'll give you some concrete examples, some clinical examples of how these might apply. So, but first you really need to know, you know, how do these equations sort of factor in and where do you, what are you putting in the numerator versus the denominator to get these answers? So a relative risk ratio is essentially what's the risk relative only to the population of individuals that were exposed to some event, whereas the absolute risk ratio is a measure of those who experienced the onset of that event compared to the entire population under study. So what you would get from an equation standpoint is you would put in parentheses in the numerator y minus x divided by y for the relative risk ratio. y would equal the cases occurring in a control condition. x would equal the cases occurring under some treatment or experimental arm, and then you would divide by y again in the denominator, y being the cases occurring in the control condition. So that's y minus x divided by y. Absolute risk, 
on the other hand, is y minus x divided by z, where z is the entire population under study. So let's consider an example, because I recognize that it's hard to envision those things over a podcast. <laughs> so imagine this example. Let's suppose that you're doing a clinical trial on chronic kidney disease sufferers. And what you're interested in is the rate of onset or the incidence of acute kidney injury in both the control and the experimental group to see if there's a difference with some new drug that you're giving. So suppose that you are exposing these patients to a new antihypertensive agent and you want to find out what the rate of acute kidney injury is in all of the individuals receiving this drug. So suppose that we have a total clinical trial population of 1,400 patients. And then let's say that we randomized half of those patients to a control condition and half of those patients to an experimental condition where the control condition is receiving standard care and the experimental condition is receiving some new antihypertensive agent, as we discussed. So we would have 700 patients in each arm, and this would be a parallel arm randomized clinical trial. The way that you would compute the relative risk ratio would be, uh, suppose that in the control condition receiving standard care, of the 700 patients in that arm, let's say 420 of them experienced acute kidney injury. And now let's say in the experimental arm, 225 participants in the trial experienced acute kidney injury. And so this number is clearly lower, but we want to find out the magnitude of this difference. And so what we're going to do is first compute a relative risk ratio. So what we're going to do is take 420, the number of people that experienced this event in the control condition, subtract the number of individuals who experience this in the treatment condition from that number, and then divide by that same number of people from the control condition who experienced this event. So it would be 420 minus 225 divided by 420 again. And that would give us 0.464 or a 46% relative risk reduction. Again, I understand that it's difficult to listen and fully comprehend what that means, but Again, you're taking the incident rate in the control condition, subtract from that number the incident rate in the treatment condition, and then divide the answer to that by the incident rate in the control condition again. This is where it's helpful to have kind of memorized that equation that I mentioned at the beginning, y minus x divided by y. You can see y is the same number, 420 in this case. So the relative risk ratio is 420 minus 225 divided by 420. That gives you a 46% relative risk reduction. The absolute risk reduction, on the other hand, would simply be y minus x divided by z, which is the whole population. So the numerator is the same. So what you do is take 420 minus 225. You get the same numerator, of course. And then instead of dividing that by y again, you divide it by z, which is the population under study, so 1,400. So the absolute risk ratio would be 420 minus 225 divided by 1,400 gives us 0.139, or 14%. So interestingly, right away, you can see there's a discrepancy between the absolute risk reduction, which is 14%, and the relative risk reduction, which is 46%. 
And this is striking because one would think if they don't understand how these measures are being used and how the results are calculated with these equations, they would assume that these numbers should be reasonably similar. But in fact, the larger your population, of course, the lower your absolute risk ratio is going to be. And so you can start to see how this might bias the results of some studies, some drug studies in particular, where they would report a relative risk reduction of some astounding number, like 50, 60, 70%, which seems phenomenal, but then their absolute risk reduction is only, say, 3%. And what's going on here? Well, the real question is, when do I use this? Because everything is relative to something else, right? And so one might be tempted to use relative risk reduction as the default. But then on the other hand, there are people who swear by using the absolute risk ratios at all times, that that's a more reliable figure. And in some ways, I understand both of these perspectives, and I think they're both important. But let's talk a little bit about when you would like to use one over the other. So what is relative about this example? What matters here in the acute kidney injury event rate example that we just talked about is that this is relative to the number of people that actually experienced the acute kidney injury, the onset of AKI. And so the absolute risk ratio is comparing the outcomes against the entire study sample, including the people for whom there was no onset of acute kidney injury. But for them, perhaps it's not even relevant. The onset of acute kidney injury in chronic kidney disease is high, but is it 100%? Probably not. You might say it was inevitable for the others to experience AKI at some point as well. So we should use the 14% absolute risk reduction as the number we need. But ignoring the fact that a 14% absolute risk reduction may be important, it also presumes too much about the rate of AKI onset in the entire population. So why not use the objectively verifiable number relative to the people who actually experienced AKI? So in this example, there were 420 individuals in the control condition and 225 individuals in the experimental condition that experienced the incident onset of acute kidney injury. And so the relative risk reduction from experimental as compared to control conditions was a 46% relative risk reduction in those who actually experienced the acute kidney injury. And so what we want to use in something like this, some case like this, is the relative risk. And I'll tell you why. Absolute risk reduction has more value when a condition is rare and the risks are unstable across different contexts. But when the condition that you're looking at is common and the risks of some adverse event or outcome is stable across contexts, such, I mean, one good example of this is COVID, for instance, a relative risk ratio is perfectly acceptable to use. On the other hand, you want to use an absolute risk, as I said, when the condition is either rare or the risks of that condition are unstable across contexts and have a lot of confounding variables that may influence that risk. Now let's talk about the number needed to treat for this example. Calculating NNT, once you know the absolute risk ratio is actually quite easy, what you do is just take 
one divided by the absolute risk ratio. So the above example had an ARR of 0.139. And so if you take one and divide 0.139 from it, you get seven. And so that means that the number needed to treat is seven. What a number needed to treat means is that you have to treat seven people with, let's say in this case, this new antihypertensive drug in order for one person to benefit from that drug. And what that really means is you treat seven patients with this new antihypertensive agent, and then one patient experiences that 14% absolute risk reduction of acute kidney injury specifically. All right, so let's take another example altogether. Consider you're doing a randomized dietary study looking at low glycemic load diet versus a standard low-fat diet for dyslipidemia. And specifically, we're looking at hyperlipoproteinemia, let's say. And we're looking at 400 subjects. So we need to know what Y means. We need to know what X means. We need to know what Z means. Recall that Z is the population, so that in this case would be 400 subjects. Y is the control condition who experiences some adverse event. X is the experimental condition that experiences some adverse event or some incident pathology, let's say. And so let's take this example of this dietary study. So suppose that the incident condition we're interested in is stroke incidence at the one-year follow-up mark after the study period is over. And we want to see if there's a difference between those who received that low glycemic load diet as compared to the standard low-fat control diet for their hyperlipoproteinemia. So we analyze the study, and we find that in the control arm, stroke incidence at one-year follow-up was 15 people. So that means that 15 people from the control condition experienced an incident stroke. Let's say it's an ischemic stroke because of the hyperlipoproteinemia. And let's suppose that in the experimental arm, seven people experienced ischemic stroke. Remember how you would calculate relative risk ratio. You would take y minus x divided by y. So this would be y is 15 people from control, x is seven people from experimental, and then y again is 15 people from control. So we would do 15 minus seven divided by 15. This gives a 0.533 answer, which if you multiply by 100, gives you 53%. So there was a 53% relative risk reduction from this low glycemic load intervention to reduce hyperlipoproteinemia and prevent the incident onset of ischemic stroke at one year follow-up. So now let's compute the absolute risk reduction. So this would be 15 minus 7, same numerator, divided by 400 which is the entire population under study for that clinical trial. If you do the math here, we have 15 minus 7 divided by 400 equals 0.02. Multiply that by 100, you get 2%. So you can see an enormous difference here, where the relative risk reduction is 53%, and the absolute risk reduction is only 2%. So what would we be tempted to use here? Now, really quickly, if you were to compute the NNT for this, the number needed to treat, it would be 50 people. Recall, NNT is 1 divided by the ARR, 
the absolute risk reduction. That would be 1 divided by 0.02. That would give you 50. So this means that 50 people would need to be treated with a low glycemic load diet in order for one person to benefit with a 2% absolute risk reduction from incident stroke in dyslipidemic adults. So in this case, which one would we use? Relative risk or absolute risk? If you talk to different people, you might get different results here, but in my case, I would be more tempted to use the absolute risk reduction here rather than relative risk because the number of instabilities which arise as a result of potential contributors to this incident risk of stroke is enormous. This can include things like other pharmaceutical drugs, other recreational drugs, illicit substances, other foods or beverages, alcohol, environmental toxins, genetic predispositions, psychosocial stress. There's all sorts of things that might factor in, and there is much less stability in the risks here and much higher variability in potential confounders. This, by the way, if you're curious, is why some of the very poor diet studies have gotten overinflated results in the press many, many times over, because you end up with relative risks that look substantial, like 53%, whereas the absolute risks are 1.5%, 2%. Recapping briefly, relative risk reduction is the number of events in the control condition, Y, minus the number of events occurring in the experimental condition, X, divided by the number of cases occurring in the control condition, again, y. So y minus x divided by y. The absolute risk reduction, on the other hand, is y minus x, same numerator, divided by the total population, z. y minus x divided by z. So really the only difference between the two in terms of how to calculate them is which denominator you use, y or z, the total population. It's quite simple. And then from there, you can take the absolute risk ratio answer and divide that from one. So one divided by the ARR, that gives you the number needed to treat, NNT. And finally, recall that NNT is the number of patients who have to receive some experimental treatment in order for one person to benefit from that absolute risk reduction. Finally, I want to talk briefly about regression. And I've been thinking about this for a while. I don't want to go too deeply into regression. And I had thought about doing a what does a regression output mean kind of podcast. But I just feel like that might be better suited for a video cast as opposed to a podcast, like an audio only podcast. Um, but nonetheless, I think that perhaps I will do that at some point. But I want to talk about this because I've had conversations, many conversations with people about whether DNP students ought to learn regression as compared to the PhD students in nursing who are expected to take that as a fundamental component of their programs. And there are often posited reasons for why DNP students ought not learn any regression. And I understand them. Uh, for example, the time commitment to learn how to conduct a regression analysis, even in a software like SPSS, which is pretty straightforward point and click, but still there's a bit of a learning curve there, might be prohibitive when you're also trying to learn 
clinical pharmacology and pathophysiology from an advanced practice level and taking your clinical coursework, and I understand that as well. However, the more I've thought about this, the more I think that DNP curricula need to at least include how to interpret regression. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it is my fervent belief, having read through decades of literature on the DNP, including the AACN 2006 and beyond documents on the core competencies of the DNP, that the fundamental reason the DNP exists is not to be like the is not to be akin to like the nursing version of an MD or DO, as is often portrayed, even from those within the profession. The fundamental purpose of the DNP is to translate evidence-based practice into the advanced practice nursing profession. Now, implicit in this notion of translating evidence is the ability to critically appraise evidence. But what's interesting about this to me is that there's a discrepancy, a blatantly obvious discrepancy between the prototypical view that DNP scholarly projects can use pre-test, post-test designs or pre-post designs, uh, which is often like a, a basic t-test, for example. Um, and that's if they do like a, a straightforward research proposal at all. And, and that's fine because you only have X number of months as opposed to a three-year dissertation period to actually square that away. Um, however, if you go out into the world and you actually read the scientific literature, what you find is that researchers are not publishing purely pre-post designs. They are publishing multivariable logistic regression analyses. They're publishing linear regression analyses. They're publishing all sorts of not so much in nursing, but in other fields, Bayesian analyses. And they are publishing uh, different kinds of more complex multi-level models. And in some ways, I can hear some people say, well, that's not really relevant for DNP-prepared nurse practitioners, except it is. And this is the reason why. If you are expected to translate research into practice. That means that you must understand the magnitude of the clinical benefit that is being purported in the research article that you are appraising. There might be an expectation, perhaps, that the DNP-prepared nurse who is reading the research is just expected to take on face value that everything that was done was just perfect. In an ideal world, you could rely on your PhD colleagues to have done everything flawlessly, to have had enough funding to do things perfectly, to have had enough, say, funding and wherewithal to invite an epidemiologist or a statistician on board to make sure that the statistical methods was uh, correctly employed and designed, that the study was designed adequately, for example, or that it was powered properly. And there are certainly elements of this that the DNP ought not to worry about simply because they can't um, in most cases in a kind of pragmatic way. But on the other hand, you still are expected to be able to read and appraise the research. And if you can't understand what a regression output means, then what happens when they conduct 
a basic, simple linear regression model to assess the results of some nursing intervention as a function of time in some patient population that is of interest to you. The issue, of course, is that if you don't know how to interpret that beta coefficient, let's say, then you cannot be expected to properly translate that research. And it's often, there's this trope that, well, the DMP can uh, participate in research if they ask a PhD colleague to become the PI for their project. And in some ways, that is an understandable thing to promulgate. The problem is that that is for the front end. That's for the uh, person who's interested in conducting research. But are you going to call your PhD prepared colleague every time you need to interpret a published result? Whether or not you know how to conduct regression analyses, let's say, since that's the example we're talking about, is irrelevant if you can't at least interpret the results of a regression analysis. How are you expected to read a regression result in a research paper and then utilize that as you try to translate it to your practice? Are you expected merely to understand the PICO and then take that as being sufficient evidence that this paper, that the results of this paper are exhibiting true effects and are real clinically or clinically important? If the DNP prepared nurse scholar and advanced practice nurse is supposed to be the clinical expert, then the clinical expert needs to be able to look at those numbers and say, is the magnitude of this clinical effect meaningful and real? Meaningful enough to translate into my practice. If you don't understand how to interpret regression, and most research uses regression and not say, a simple analysis of variance, although that, of course, happens as well quite often, then how are you going to be able to actually translate the evidence? The last thing that I'll say on this is that people often rebut this point with the notion that learning linear regression, for example, even fundamental, simple linear regression, takes so much effort and time to master that it's just not feasible to incorporate into a DNP curriculum. But to that, I would say a couple things. First of all, we have electives for a reason, and there's no reason why a basic regression analysis course could not be constructed for one of the electives. Similarly, there are strong DNP programs, such as the one that I am attending, which allow for certain electives from the medical schools nearby or other universities who are affiliated with that nursing school or those nursing institutions that can be substituted for the typical graduate elective at the School of Nursing, which might afford the opportunity to take something like an advanced uh, epidemiology course elsewhere. And the point being that there are places to fit those 15-week curricula in. And to the comments about it being too challenging, I would ask this. Did everybody who is in a DNP program take fifth grade algebra? I presume the answer to that is yes. And what that tells me is that if you, as a fifth grader, could learn y equals mx plus b, 
which is the fundamental equation of linear regression, there is no reason why you couldn't learn it in graduate school for a doctoral program. Now, again, let me reiterate and just say, I am not suggesting that one must learn to master the conduct of linear regression or be able to compute a regression equation by hand, although it's not that hard. I, and I'm also not suggesting that they ought to learn how to program a linear model into R or Python, let's say. Although, again, programming a linear model in Jupyter Notebook is like five letters in one line. It's actually quite simple and straightforward. But again, I totally understand that that's not as feasible for some individuals who are not as computer savvy. Also not the point. The point is simply to have a discussion about how best to understand the output so that you can best appraise the literature that uses those methods. Once again, the point is, if you cannot understand the method, at least from an output standpoint, you will not be able to appropriately understand the results of a research article, and therefore you will not be able to appropriately translate that into your practice. And if the fundamental point of the DNP is to translate evidence, then it follows that they must understand the evidence. So needless to say, I am a big proponent of DNPs understanding their data analytic methods. And partly I say this because there's a lot of talk in the literature about PhD-prepared nurses being in the forefront of the generation of new novel evidence, and uh, that makes perfectly good sense. However, there's a lot of talk as well about DNPs being in the back end doing more complex data analytic work. And there's a big push in nursing to orient toward big data and data science more broadly, and things like informatics. And DNP-prepared nurses are well-suited to train additionally in informatics. And so this is something we are going to see the need for moving forward. And I would love to see there be less resistance to at least affording DNP students of the future the opportunity to grow in this way so that they can actually take on this role of leading the translation of nursing science into practice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. Any support, however small, will be profoundly helpful in continuously improving the episodes across time. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and visit my website at about.me forward slash Ian Lane. If I ever review a paper you are an author on or you would like to join me to discuss some project you are doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time. <laughs>